Hi, I'm Sumit Bose. Welcome to the Net Hero Podcast. Remember, we're online, we're video and audio. You can download us, you can watch us on the Energy Live News YouTube channel, and of course, subscribe to the podcast with whatever podcast service you listen to. We want you to be involved in the podcast every week, so make sure that you get in touch. If you've got something you think should be talked about, you're doing something in net zero or ESG or sustainability, or you just think you've got a tale that others would be inspired by, then drop me a line, nethero at futurenetzero.com, and make sure that you listen in regularly. Without you as the audience and also our guests, the podcast is nothing. Now, on to this week's episode. Hello, I'm Simon Bose. Welcome to another episode of the Net Hero Podcast. Keep subscribing, keep listening, keep telling us what we should be doing and make sure that you get involved. Now, today, I wanted to explore something that, uh, if you're like me, you've kind of seen in movies, but we don't really have much of it in the UK. District heating, you know, you've seen the scenes in the New York, the steam coming out of the subways, you know, where there's Ghostbusters animals and ghosts hiding in it. It's been this thing that's been really popular in America, particularly, but other parts of the world. But we have very little of it going on in the UK. New builds, new complexes are starting to do it. So I wanted to explore in this podcast what district heating really is, how they work, what their advantages are and how we transition these things to more net zero. And I'm delighted to say, and I didn't even know there was, there is an international district energy uh, association, not IDEA, IDEA. And Rob Thornton is the CEO. Rob, thanks for joining us on the Net Era podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Great to be here, Sonia. Thank you. So, so let's start at the very beginning. What sure. is sort of district heating? Yeah, so actually it's district heating, district cooling. We call it collectively district energy, but we'll start with heating because that's where it began. So essentially it's a central plant or plants uh, that produce steam or hot water and or chilled water and sometimes power, electricity as well. And then that's connected to an underground thermal grid, a network of pipes that supply uh, heat to connected buildings in a district, a city, a campus, an airport. Uh, healthcare, you know, community. And so district heating is really nothing new. The Romans actually started it, you know, uh, oh, wow. give them great credit. But it really began, uh, I'd say, in the late 1800s in the U.S. as a business when Thomas Edison, who we all know was the, you know, the founder of General Electric and all the Edison, uh, you know, illuminating companies in, down, in cities, they began as combined heat and power plants. So they would they would make uh, heat, spin turbines to make power, electricity. And Edison realized he couldn't really make a profit with these investments, only selling power. And when he went to sell power to customers in Manhattan, they said, well, I'll buy your electricity, but that means I have to shut down the dynamo I have in my, in my yeah, basement yeah. that makes all my heat. So can you also provide me heat? And really... Edison realized, you know what, I need to, I, if, I, if I provide the heat as a byproduct, this whole investment will be more profitable. And so I'm, began, I'm assuming, just yeah, to interrupt yeah, you, yeah. Uh, this was all coal, I assume, they were burning. Oh, it, initially it was. Right. So okay. coal stations downtown. And then that, that's a key point. 
District heating was really the very first environmental strategy for cities. Because at the time, every building had its own coal boiler, furnace, et cetera. That's right? exactly what we had in the UK. Every house has hundreds its own little coal fire. And that's been the model. Un hundreds, un yeah. you know, un uncontrolled, et cetera. And that resulted in particulates in the air, very bad urban air. And uh, you, the great smog of London was due in part to coal, coal particulates in the air and an inversion, right? The, yeah. And so that, and so then district heating became a, an opportunity to centralize and and remove hundreds of individual boiler plants from buildings and connect them to this network that was a a, 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 a more precisely controlled, a more efficient, a more reliable, and it also reduced the likelihood of fires in the city because it was again centralized and controlled managed and operated by professionals so district heating was really the first urban environmental safety air quality one of strategy uh, you know really in the world in terms of where the heat goes so obviously mm -hmm. in the yeah. beginning let's go back to then your coal boiler and it's it's burning you're creating steam and off it goes the pipes then connected to buildings and what would happen the pipes would take steam or hot water or would they then heat water in circulating the buildings to create heat through radiators is that is that how it all began that's largely how it happens i mean in in it, when you look at uh, older buildings yeah. uh, in manhattan or in any of our us cities you'll see often steam radiators and they're located yeah. often under the window and generally they're oversized because at the time Basically, you needed operable windows to get outside air because of, you know, other, you know, health issues. So, so steam was actually produced at the plant, descent through the underground pipes, generally at like 120 pounds of pressure, right? So steam is a gas, it's moving through the pipes. When it enters the building, it's usually stepped down through a mm -hmm. pressure reducing valve to around an operating pressure of like 10 pounds. So that so when it's op going through a building, it's at a lower pressure. But and the, then, it's then the it, steam that circulates through the building, not water. Sometimes. Now, ah, in, a, okay. in, a, in, a, in a, so that would be like in an older brownstone, like, yeah. a, you know, yeah. a, an older building, right? A dormitory, et cetera. As, uh, uh, as buildings modernize, basically the steam often gets converted to hot water and then is circulated, uh, you know, it, you know, through coils in the building yeah. Yeah. Uh, or radiant. So it depends on the use in the building, but steam is still today used in autoclaves and to sterilize hospital uh, equipment and is used in process to make bio, you know, biopharmaceuticals, et cetera. So why, why is it so yeah. big? I mean, before we start mm. recording, you said pretty much yeah. every, well, probably every major city in the US has it. Campuses have it. Universities have it. Why is it so popular there? It makes economic sense. Yeah. And it's economies of scale. So rather than every building dedicating space and equipment and capital and manpower to producing and managing and operating and insuring and providing water to equipment, individual buildings, by consolidating at a central plant, you can supply energy to a hundred buildings, you know, through one central plant. And so particularly in a college university campus, in, instead of dedicating space, valuable leasable space in the building to equipment, not, to, not only in the building, but on top of the building, right, you know, yeah. if, if, you, if you have a boiler, 
or a, a chiller plant where you're making air conditioning in your building, you've got to release the heat through cooling towers on the roof. Guess what? That's some of the most valuable yeah, real estate is, yeah. <laughs> anywhere, right? So we actually, one of our active members is in Dubai, very large district cooling network. There's two hotels nearly side by side. One has a roof full of condensers, making noise, yeah. you know, rejecting the classic, heat. The, the classic the show. Other, yeah. Yeah. The other has a tennis court. A, a roof garden, yeah. <laughs> Who would, which building's more valuable? Which go. one would yeah. you rather have? And so that that's really, district energy is an economic, and moreover, efficient. So instead of, you know, think of it like every building has, when, when you select a vehicle, you know, for your family for a year, Oh, we're going to take a summer vacation. We're going to need an SUV mm. to, you know, to put everybody in all our goods. But that's two weeks a year, let's say. Yeah, yeah. But you got to buy that that unit to support that period of time, right? That's what happens when buildings do it themselves. They overinvest in equipment. It's oversized. It's ultimately un inefficient most of the year. Uh, and so when you when you kind of aggregate and scale that back, you get efficiencies at the central plant. And then the customers are really taking what they need, not what they have to have. So there's a whole range of advantages yeah. to district energy. Let's let's so right now, I mean, I, as I said, I haven't been to New York for, for years, but and I stayed in a hotel, I can't remember it. But if you go to an average apartment in any American city, right? I walk in and I've got my apartment that's being heated generally by a district, right? So do I have control of my heat or is it basically what they've set at the plant? Your apartment's going to be 25 degrees all the year round, Sumit. <laughs> no, if it's a, uh, it, no, it, today you would have control. You right. know, you would have a thermostat. But I assume the and, old days yeah. you didn't. It was kind of what came out. Well, that's actually improved quite a bit in the last wow. 20 years, too, right? So controls are, are much less expensive to install. They're much easier to Because that's always the big big problem, isn't right. it? Like, you know, everyone yeah. has different... We have, it, we have it in our office. You know, some of the yeah. guys want the air conditioning full blast. Others are freezing. So you've right. got to find, you know, and, and that's why right. people say, you know, if you have an apartment block, you know, your next door neighbor likes it at 20 degrees. You like it at 25. Right. And yet you're being served, you know, 27 for all of you or whatever. So there is an yeah. element of control now, is there? Absolutely. And, uh, and, and moreover, uh, in a, certainly residential and then in commercial office space too, you know, the, when you look at a building, if it, if it is standing alone and it's, a, and it's a tower, you know, in the morning when the sun hits it from the yeah. east and then the yeah. south, you know, that side of the building, you know, kind of warms up first and that's going to need cooling, you know, most, then the other perimeter, you know, may actually need, you know, need heating. So systems in buildings now are, you know, very capable of adjusting, modulating, et cetera. And here's another less understood and, yep. but, but new sort of thing. One of the areas that generates huge amounts of heat is our data centers, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's a big issue. Heat We've had people on about that. Yeah, absolutely. 24-7. Yeah. Turns out that heat is low-grade heat, but Amazon headquarters in Seattle they have a data center that serves their campus. It's a four-building campus. That data center provides all the heating for the other three buildings, four million mm -hmm. square feet. So what's happened in the last, I'd say, you know, two decades is there's been a recognition that energy is not electricity and electricity is not energy. 
really, you know, energy is both heating, cooling, and electricity. And in the EU, more than 50% of primary energy is used for heating and cooling buildings. It's not just electricity. Oh, yeah. You've, 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 you've hit the, 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 the topic that always grates. It's very interesting. This point that you've raised is the one that perhaps maybe you've been ahead of it in the US because we've generally seen our systems in the UK as kind of electricity and gas, right? And most people right. have cooked with gas and heated our houses with gas and we've used electricity for everything else. Would you say that America has always been slightly different in that sense that because from the Edison days, the power and the heat are intrinsically involved? Have these district sort of heating systems, have they made the ability for people to see energy slightly different to what we probably see over here compared to what you see over there? Well, it really depends where your footprint is. I'd say in cities, there's a recognition and a, uh, of the advantages of district energy, combined heat and power, you know, district heating. So where you have a cluster or a density, a vertical density, you know, I think in the U.S., um, I, I think both, you know, architects and engineers and, you know, developers, property owners, government, I, I think people, you know, are getting it. They get it where, you know, America, if you look out in the suburbs where the density isn't there and, you know, homes are spread apart, et cetera, there isn't really the economic yeah, well, that's advantage. That's exactly what I was saying. Yeah, the, the yeah. idea of the kind of lovely love suburb in America. What do they have there? Do you have district heating or is it more individual no, based? Ge generally not. No, but okay. but what, what we're beginning to see, though, in communities, particularly like Newville, you mentioned earlier, yeah. um, in Canada, near Toronto, there's a community uh, that that is uh, being built with a district energy network, and so there there basically there'll be 250 individual homes on a uh, and each home will have a heat pump, and they'll be connected to a thermal loop. It's a more of an ambient loop, uh, and 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 it turns out that people want to own and live in buildings that are prepared for a more sustainable future, designed for lower carbon footprint. Uh, have a greater resiliency, maybe aren't as prone to interruption when the wires are impaired or yep. the you yep. know, brownouts, et cetera. So we're, we're starting to see where there's cluster opportunity and, and you know, in some aggregation scale, uh, district energy is really being, uh, I think, more carefully evaluated and often implemented. How, how long have you, are you an engineer? What's your background? Uh, no, I'm a son of an engineer. Uh, I, uh, Went to college at Tufts University. Uh, I, I, I've grown up in the industry. I've been in district energy since 1987. But I've been Love in the it. energy industry my whole career. Right. It, it started for me. Summit. I, I was wanted to stay in Boston for the summer. I was, a student, <laughs> I was a student. I went to the financial aid office. I said, "Hey, do you have any internships?" You, you want to stay here? in the summer for the for the, for the ladies in the summer? For the fun. <laughs> well, you know, it was Boston, right? Uh, of 1978. It was more <laughs> They sent me a little think tank, the Energy Policy Research Institute. Uh, I showed up. Hi, I'm from Tufts. You know, here, you do the greenhouse effect. Right. So 1978, second yeah. oil embargo. Oh, Jimmy Carter's in the White House. Yeah. Moral equivalent of war. It turns out I had an epiphany that not only was our energy policy really bad, um, but we had a huge challenge in terms of, you know, climate change or the greenhouse effect. 
And, you know, I've really been, it's been my pursuit, my career really ever since that, uh, that moment. Where did I, how long has idea, IDA, sorry, been going? I mean, because the international part of it, what you've said is brilliant. And, and I think most of us could, who are listening, and it is principally UK audience, totally get district heating in the US. But you are an international, I think you're in 25 right. countries, right? 28, yes. 28 countries, right. So where are the other places where this has been going on for a long time? I, let's yeah. let's ignore Canada because I assume Canada is probably the same. But around Europe, is it big? Is it in the Far East? In in India? Is it in you know parts of China? Where where would where would you say you're seeing this? Yes, 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 and yes. Right. Uh, district energy is is ubiquitous globally. We're seeing huge investment happening in China. You know, uh, uh, as they're moving carbon out of the central city. Um, yeah. Certainly, Europe. Uh, Germany, France, Paris has a massive, largely integrated district energy network. God, I they, didn't even they, know that. Wow. They provide cooling to the Louvre from the Seine. Oh, wow. Uh, and there's geothermal. The, 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 the yeah. Paris energy network is brilliant. Huh. It, it deploys all sorts of technologies, including recovering heat from waste incineration. Instead, instead of going to landfill, it's, it's useful heat, useful wow. energy. Copenhagen, 98% of the buildings in Copenhagen are on district heating. Uh, 60% of that heat is from waste to energy or combined heat and power. Heat recovered from electric generating stations. Denmark is uh, Sweden. The Scandinavian countries- Of course, yeah, really pretty heavy, yeah. Very, you know, they really lead the pack. Germany. And you, and you said a bit about the Middle East earlier. The so Middle I East, assume yeah. it's about cooling there, I assume, is it? Yes, absolutely correct. Yes. So Abu Dhabi, Dubai, the United Arab Emirates is where we have you know, very strong footprint. Uh, you know, the industry has blossomed as Dubai, you know, has become sort of Manhattan in a couple of decades. Most of that is on district cooling. Now you see the, you know, the, the, uh, the Burj Al Arab, uh, all of those kind of clustered communities are on district cooling. The reason being, if they were to put all of that space on the electric utility industry, the, the grid would be would have to be three times the size. I mean, you know, so the infrastructure requirements to air condition, 70% of the electricity produced in UAE is used for air conditioning. And so they needed out of a strategy to have a more sustainable, lower carbon, more resilient uh, cooling alternative. And district cooling has been the default in, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. I'm going to hit you now with it. What have we been doing in the UK? It, you know, ain't, it ain't good, is it? No, no, no. <laughs> you know, I, I actually, don't beat yourself up. You guys, <laughs> you, uh, collectively, uh, the Greater London Authority, I'd say 12, 15 years ago, you, you undertook a heat mapping initiative in yes. 2010, which was really clever because basically- no, no, I, We've seen newer builds, but I mean, historically, right. we've been very poor at it, haven't we? Come on, yeah, Rob, no, you can be honest. No, here. <laughs> no, I, no I mean, I, I, I think, uh, no, I, I, I think, I think you've had an awakening, you know, uh, I, I think you're, you're starting to realize that, you know, heat rejected into the rivers or the sky, yeah. you know, it's useful. And maybe if there's a way we can recapture that and put it to use, but the, it's not, but easy, the trouble it's is not it's, easy to put that no. infrastructure. In place. And that's it's, what I was going to say to you. Yeah, I, I think yeah. everything you've said is brilliant and I get it. And I get it where cities were built that way, American cities. And here we have 
in the UK. We're building new, as I said, new housing where maybe there's a plant nearby or they, they combine heat and power. But you cannot retrofit district heating. You no, can't you can. dig up the cities, can you? So no, is you can. This, is, can you? Yeah, oh, sure, sure, yes. Whoa. I mean, it's not for the it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I was I was meeting with one of our member systems right. just the other day in Boston. Okay, they, they own they own and operate uh, I think seventeen systems in eleven cities. And in the past year and a half, they've put over a mile and a half of new pipe in the city of Boston. Now, you know, I mean, Boston isn't as dense as Manhattan. I'll give you that. But you still you know, got to dig up the streets and annoy everyone. Well, you have to do it. You know, co efficiently, collectively, you have to get in and get out. You know, it, um, um, you, you can't sort of leave it unpaved for, you know, uh, weeks at a time. But there, there is a way. Uh, here's a here's another. So, so, I think, sorry, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I want to interrupt be because yeah. I, I, I do love what you're saying, but I just can't imagine a retrofit option for a city. Let's take a city like, I don't know, Birmingham or Manchester, a smaller city in the UK or even Cardiff. To go and say, actually, let's go and retrofit now district heating, it would just uh, people would just go bonkers. Well, I mean, you don't you don't blanket it, you don't cover it overnight. You, right. you kind of you can do it in nodes, right? So you know you, you connect to uh, like a, a community housing or a complex, right? That's step one, and then maybe a, you know a few blocks away you connect another. So there's a way to Lego this sort of build Jenga this, yeah. right? Yeah. Do building blocks. Yeah. It, you, you don't. You don't. You don't snap your fingers and get there overnight. No. This is in the since 1990 in North America. We've built, I think, nearly 65 downtown district cooling systems. And district cooling it takes a larger pipe, two of them, in fact. And because there's less heat transferred, you have to move more water. So in Cleveland, for instance, we built a district cooling system, put it in the city, put two 42-inch pipes, two, you know, four. So that's I, 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 I should know it. I should know it in meters, but yeah, yeah, two trunks right down the center. And not only that, we had to get across an intersection on a weekend before the Monday night football game was, you know, took place. So uh, yes, maybe you just got better tickets and better well, workmen. You got to be smart about it. Yeah. So it, it can be done in all of Dubai. Uh, so uh, it's easier, obviously. No, in the US. I get it. I get it. Is it, um, before we end, I want to cover a couple of things. So yeah. is this an option for developing nations? So, because the other thing that always worries me about these things, these are big infrastructure projects and they cost a lot. Most states won't be able to do it, but obviously states can allow the legislative uh, market to be right for, for private companies to do it. So let's take, I don't know, Brazil or Africa or places like that. Are you seeing any traction where, you know, in developing nations, people are going, actually, we're going to start putting in district heating? Um, so we're actually going to Colombia uh, right. in, in a couple of weeks and Colombia, Chile. Uh, so Latin America, where, you know, the, the population is, I think, you know, denser in, in yeah. cities. Absolutely. They are looking to retrofit. Uh, and depending on the climate, Chile has a need for both heating and cooling. Mm -hmm. Colombia may be more cooling, mm -hmm. you know, centric. Uh, so Latin America for certain. I, I think I think in the other locales. You, you, it does require a certain uh, aggregation, a con, you know, kind of a cluster scale 
to make the economics work. You can't just put pipe in the ground and hope people, you know, kind of uh, exactly. You've got to have a business yeah. case and you've got to, it's yes. a big investment yeah. for a company privately to do it, isn't it? Yes, but it turns out that those investments generate terrific yield. The city of Toronto was an investor in district cooling. They they were a partner in a network that basically put not only a water line out into Lake Ontario, but used the cold of Lake Ontario to air condition downtown Toronto. Uh, it was it was a it, it was. Is jointly a, owned by, so it's a public it's privately owned now. Okay, right. Well, it was initially right. So right. the city and the. Uh, oh, uh, Ontario uh, Pension Fund were the sort of the co-owners in, uh, during that d d phase of development. The city of Toronto decided to sell their share, and then the the pension fund said, "Okay, you know, we'll, we'll go along." And the city generated a, a return on capital of over 168 million dollars Canadian. Wow. So that investment actually, you know, it it, it it produced a return that the city could then use you know, a capital gain for other infrastructure. Needs. So, so, yeah. so cities can play a role. They can be an owner. They can, they can, they certainly can uh, support, facilitate and encourage private investment. It's, it's not a, it, it, district energy works best when there's both a, maybe a, a more carrot than stick. Understood. You know, um, but are uh, there the companies out there willing to invest? So they're absolutely. Yeah, that's happening. absolutely okay. huge, huge turnover in our in our space right now. Before Billions. we go, before we go, let's. I, I like it, right? You, you've sold me. I'm going to go and dig up my neighbors neighborhood now and stick some pipes. <laughs> but in all seriousness, how do you start to do the thing that's really all, all this about? Decarbonize that. So we talked right at the beginning the initial firing of these boilers was coal. So what has the actual district heating industry done to clean up its act and its emissions and to make sure it recaptures much heat or it's cutting away from fossil fuels to actually generate the thermal power in the first place? What are you doing? Well, uh, so we're not wasting the heat that's used to make power. We're using it, right? So right. the efficiency of our plants typically is in the 70, 80, even 85% of the fuel consumed to make power, heat, and cooling is useful energy. So that displaces downstream carbon emissions from you know multiple uh, boilers and, and equipment. We uh, and and it turns out when you have when you already have the scale, now you can plug in different technologies. Uh, for instance, um, at Princeton University, they're they're currently. Uh, punching boreholes to build a geo exchange right. network yeah. right so they're converting the steam system to use hot water but they have a chilled water network so there's a like a wholesale change happening there the uh one of our members in chicago centrio uh, has five five chilled water plants downtown they make ice at night they buy look in fact, it's a carbon-free district cooling system in downtown Chicago, the third largest city in our country. They buy uh, nuclear power at night. They make millions of pounds of ice. They store it in vast tanks in, in their power in their uh, chilled water plants. There's a network that connects 120 million, uh, 120 buildings, 60 million square feet. So during the day when the grid is really impaired, yeah. they're getting their cooling from the ice battery that was made the night before, and they're avoiding the dirty power, you know, that 
basically comes on stream to support the air conditioning load. That I made that more complicated. No, I, I get what you're saying, but is, is it fair to say still a lot of the initial power is still coming from things like gas and fossil fuels? Uh, yeah, uh, so our members, uh, I think uh, probably 70% of the the heat generated, uh, heat power and cooling generated is, is still on natural gas. Okay. However, when you look at the marginal, uh, so a number of our systems, what they do is, you know, they make, they, they have the option to make their own power, heat and cooling, and then they're buying power from the grid real time, right? And so they're checking the grid on a 15 minute interval. Is the grid cleaner electricity than I can make? Okay, is it lower carbon, yeah, right? Okay. And so, so they can basically arbitrage and, and then make a decision, price and carbon. Which is the cleaner, you know, kind of uh, electrons? What's the cleaner? And that's happening right now. And again, that happens because you have the scale of a network and a thermal grid that gives you that optionality that individual buildings really can't, you know, they're just in the retail electric market. Our members are at the wholesale power market. When the offshore wind is, is available, they're going to be running heat pumps. And it turns out, Summit, that when you use a, a, a large heat pump to make heating and cooling for a, a campus or a city, not only do you make heat, but you cool the river. Yeah. So one yeah. of our members is putting a big heat pump in, in the So you're the saying Charles there's loads river. of ancillary new technologies that are coming around. That's great for the yeah. fish yeah, in yeah. Seattle. It's going to be a <laughs> huge benefit. I, 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 th I think it's really interesting because there's a lot of layers to this. Yeah, there is. And I think that the, the thing is with this whole thing, as I said, it's a fairly alien concept for us here in the UK, but definitely one that's that's been growing there. Um, I've been very, very, very fascinated by our conversation. Thank you. Is your hope that district heating continues to become a you know one of the levers we can pull globally to try and get us to reduce our emissions? I think it's critical. I think it's essential. And, you know, we're now a planet of 8.1 billion yeah. people, you know, 55% live in cities. There'll be 6 billion people living in cities by, uh, you know, by 2050. We have to solve for cities. You know, that's really where 70% of the, you know, greenhouse gases occur. Um, and so, you know, I, I liken it, like you know, so you can, you can solve for a a whole bunch of bananas, right? A stem, a stalk of bananas or one banana at a time. We're, we're trying to address it a bunch of bananas at a time, a city at a time, or at least a district at a time. Not Maybe not all of London. No, I get but, it. I you get know, it. Thames Way, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So it's amazing what our members really help each other. They support each other. There's such technical peer exchange. Yes, there's competition, but basically, you know, there's such collegial collaboration, so problem solving, innovation. It's an exciting space. And it, I've been in it now for 40 years. I'll, I'll tell you what. You're still very uh, enthused after 40 well, years. It's, it's, a, it's a great place to make a difference. And uh, really, we're, we're charged. We, uh, we really see an important future for all of us. Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Yo, so, my uh, pleasure. Do check out uh, IDEA and have a look at District Heating. And if you've got a story to tell, then come on to the Net Hero podcast, just like Rob did, because we're very keen to explore all the ways we can try and cut our carbon. Remember to subscribe to the podcast, like us, do all the things that people do, especially young people, do the clicking and all that stuff. I'll catch you very soon.
See you soon. You've been listening to the Net Hero Podcast with Sumit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.